including human beings. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics for Exploration. Good day. When you think of the hard knock, you think of that station of resistance. One of the most phenomenal beats of all time. Good information and great radio. News, views, and hip-hop. What? Do it the way you feel it. Hard knock. Hard knock. Hard knock. Radio. Monday through Friday. And it's from 4 to 5 p.m. Knocking hard in your area. 94.1 KPMA. Only revolution is our evolution. <sighs> so good. This is Nina Serrano inviting you to be sure to tune in on Wednesday, June 3rd at 3.30 p.m. to Open Book, Poet to Poet. My guests will be Elaine Ellenson. This new volume of Langston Hughes' Letters gives us greater insight into Hughes' own dreams and the experiences and passions that shaped his writing. And Greg Bridges. Good morning, Revolution. You're the best friend I ever had. We're going to pal around together from now on. Say, listen, Revolution, you know the boss where I used to work? The guy that gave me the air to cut expenses. He wrote a long letter to the papers. We'll be featuring the new book of selected letters of Langston Hughes, just published by Knopf. It's going to be a literary treat. June 3rd at 3.30. Open book, poet to poet. And this is 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It is 3.02 p.m. Stay tuned for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. Picture drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is June the second, two thousand and fifteen. Now, today I want to talk about two films. They're both on HBO. Uh, first, J.K. Rowling's A Casual Vacancy. That's the title, A Casual Vacancy. I started in on that one at this time last week. Uh, and the second film is about what has been called The Lost Boys of the Sudan. Now... That movie, the title is The Good Lie. Yes, you remember all those stories about the uh, the refugees in Sudan 
all through the 80s. And, uh, oh, golly, I mustn't be a spoiler because that movie really got to me. And I don't, I don't want to spoil it because, uh, I, I hadn't heard that much about it. And, uh, when I saw it for the first time, I guess night before last, it really, really made me, uh, what do you call that? Uh, well, um, I'm too old to get upset about the state of the world. Uh, this one actually made me, uh, what's the word? Oh, global perspective, right. Yes, yes. The whole thing, the whole globe, all of us in this together. Anyway, uh, first, J.K. Rowling, Rowling, I never know how to pronounce her name. Her latest literary effort is called A Casual Vacancy. Now, she was interviewed. She said that after so many years of her Harry Potter success, she wanted to write a book for adults. <laughs> anyway, I, now, now uh, obviously, J.K. Rowling will never have to be concerned about uh, success, popularity, that sort of thing. Uh, she can write whatever she wants now. Uh, her fortune, uh, the Harry Potter fortune, is unequaled by that of any other author in the English-speaking world. Ah, I don't know. I don't know how that makes me feel. Anyway, the Harry Potter movies are uh, colossal. They are an industry in themselves. Uh, more than Star Wars and so forth. Uh, I, I read the first Harry Potter, some of it, some of it. Uh, I didn't last. Anyway, her money is made. She's set for life, free to speak and write about these issues that she cares about. Uh, she sees reality, adult reality, and she wants to uh, examine uh, <laughs> where she is, uh, what's happening around her. Uh, she she wants to write about the process, political process, by which a small community delegates power. How things how things are run, you know, uh, how everything works. Now she wants to do this on a small scale. Politics uh, on the village level in England. Anyway, you know it's easy to compare the. Uh, microcosm to the larger, larger political scene. Uh, we've all seen all the pictures and stories about uh, movies about the British political <laughs> political <laughs> machinations. They're vastly entertaining. Uh, all that stuff that uh, Parliament gets up to. Now, it's the same here in the USA in Washington, D.C., material for movies. Now, whether it's a prime minister or a president, the struggle for power is pretty much the same. Uh, she wants to illustrate this, uh, this process, the machinations of politics, with her story, uh, A Casual Vacancy, because <laughs> she... <laughs> She feels that if we understood the way things work uh, on that level, we might be able to uh, enlarge our perspective, get a global perspective right. Anyway, 
the parish council in the village she's talking about uh, suddenly has a vacancy. Uh, now, this village is just the sort of charming little place you know. You've seen them in the murder mysteries like Miss Marple, but things are not so sweet in her village. Uh, the show is a three-parter. I think it's three parts, two or three. I can't remember now. Uh, as I said, it's on HBO, The Casual Vacancy. Uh, I haven't read the book, so uh, I can only judge by what I see on the screen, the screen version. Uh, we've got all the usual suspects, the British actors who never fail uh, to entertain, give incisive performances. Michael Gabon uh, is the most despicable of the characters, the locals. Uh, he is an actor who, gosh, along with uh, Jim Broadbent, he seems to be just about the best of all the rest. Anyway... He's the most despicable member of this parish council. He's aided and abetted by his malicious, sweet-faced wife. Uh, now, he gets a comeuppance of sorts, but again, I don't want to be a spoiler. Uh, uh, it doesn't really save the community from the loss of the very liberal local project, uh, a home for social services for drug addicts, young people in need of help. Now, this institution is named Sweet Love, for gosh sakes. Uh, now, Sweet Love is the name of the family responsible for the finances. And they take a dim view of <laughs> what we call immorality, I guess. We are introduced to uh, the community organizer, the one who's going to die. Yes, community organizer. You remember... That was Obama's job to start with. Now, this is an overworked, liberal, uh, uh, hands-on, hands-on uh, first responder, right? He struggles to keep sweet love open, and he's a friend, even to the sort of drug addicts that everyone else has given up on. His sudden death gives the greedy folks on the council a chance to uh, get their man in and replace this guy on the parish council, a wealthy couple, Michael Gabon, yes, uh, together with his smug wife, are the primary villains here, although everyone, everyone has a uh, <laughs> an axe to grind or something. Anyway, make long story short, they want to back a Scandinavian corporation planning a spa, a profit-making resort for the wealthy. Now, this plot is... All too familiar. Um, same old, same old. Uh, what distinguishes this script for the casual vacancy, the casual vacancy, right, is the tone, the texture, uh, what we call style. These unique characters are distinct, definitely individuals, while at the same time they represent those social forces every civilized group must grapple with. How to make things work, you know, without murder, although <laughs> I was thinking here, I, I made a whole bunch of notes on the brilliant TV series Deadwood, in which, yes, murder is the the first step to uh, uh, political <laughs> success, to power. Anyway, I, I'm going to have to, uh, let me skip over my 
all my comments on Deadwood because I made notes on it years ago and uh, I just love the woman who played Calamity Jane. Jane, uh, Deadwood is all about uh, 19th century up in the Dakotas, but never mind that. One day maybe I can uh, sort that one out, deconstruct it. Uh, now, uh, J.K. Rowling's Casual Vacancy uh, includes also lots of multicultural conflicts. There's an East Indian woman. She's a doctor. She loses her cool, finally. Uh, she's up against the arrogance and stupidity of that uh, Michael Gabon. Anyway, uh, all these issues and problems, you know, uh, anybody who works in an office, <laughs> anybody who deals with... Um, more than three people knows what this is all about. The final outcome, the ordering of events, uh, is left in rather naive hands. Someone who may be useful or may be helpful. I don't want to give away the plot except to say that uh, irony is a little rusty these days. I guess that's why audiences seem to prefer fantasies. You know, tales like Game of Thrones... Game of Thrones is one of those wonderful, simplistic tales like Harry Potter in which there's the good and the bad, you know, uh, excess, uh, breathtaking glamour, exotic adventure. Game of Thrones is an embarrassment of riches. That's another one I really should deconstruct. But there's so many plot lines I'm lost. I think that uh, the future on TV is probably fantasy, although uh, the script writers I admire are the ones who uh, make an effort to recreate history, you know, with authenticity. I want to be able to imagine that they're real, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Uh, J.K. Rowling's tale, A Casual Vacancy, feels all too real. I know these people. But my own times give me a headache, and I want to watch the Vikings set in 8th century Scandinavia. Talk about escapism. Yes, England in the 8th century. Wow, it isn't even England yet. Oh, I like Elizabethan England, although it's been done to death, as had as said. Jane Austen's 19th century, you know. Uh, well, that's prettied up, of course. Renaissance Italy in the 15th century gave us the Borgias. Uh, Jeremy Irons as Pope Alexander in 1492. Great city of Rome given a theatrical punch in uh, the series, the Borgias. Uh, Rome is another series that may just be the definitive historical series it is for me. Uh, I'm crazy about historical drama ever since I read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as a schoolgirl. Uh, that stuff just fascinates me. I don't know why it's so much more interesting than, uh, what is it, made-up stuff. Of course, uh, these dramas, so-called historical dramas, are simply uh, the fantasies, the work of the writers still, I guess, I think, something about watching Anne Boleyn <laughs> meet her end. I'd like to compare the dozen actresses I've seen 
uh, get their heads chopped off. You know, I always wonder whether they're going to use the lines that she is said to have. She is said to have used what was said. I have such a small neck. Anyway, uh, I don't know. Whatever things may have been like in the past, I like to think about what happened there and uh, relate it to the here and now. Legends, myths, stories, uh, all that old ancient stuff has magnitude. It's the big stuff that monuments are made of. You know how that is. You let history soak for a couple of centuries and suddenly it gets interesting, you know. I wonder, in our time, magnitude. Ah, Martin Luther King, yes. Uh, the Kennedys, yes, in spite of what some liberals feel, certainly Malcolm X. Uh, Mandela. Anyway, more about that another time. Uh, the one movie I really want to recommend, without any reservations, is a feature film, the one on HBO, the one about the Sudanese refugees. It's based on true stories of what have come to be called those lost boys of Sudan. The title of that movie is The Good Lie. Now, in this story, there's just one girl refugee in the uh, cast of the center, central character. Uh, she's part of a tight-knit group that becomes a family and lives together in the Kamura refugee camp in Kenya uh, for 13 years. I wanted to follow her story as well as that of the three boys. Uh, all four of them arrive in the U.S., and she is separated from her brothers. Uh, she's the biological sister of one of the boys, but it is assumed they're all a family because that's how they describe themselves. And, of course, uh, after what they have been through, uh, <laughs> that's what they are. Uh, I really got shook up. I really uh, got upset. I know they were trying to illustrate the fact that bureaucratic red tape uh, can do things like separate one child from the only people she knows, the only uh, family she has. Uh, anyway, uh, most of us remember the Sudanese civil wars of the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> I can't help thinking that this girl who goes off to Boston, they, they want her to be with a family, you know, because it's not proper for girls to live with boys. So the boys go to Kansas. They got their own little apartment. And uh, the woman from the uh, religious charity, you know, the uh, faith, uh, faith activists, whatever they are, uh, good Christians, I'm sure, they said, well, you know, it's too small. There wouldn't be room for her. These are children who have uh, slept in the bush and eaten horrible things, saying to themselves, I do not want to die. I do not want to die. And swallowing horrible. Uh, oh, I won't tell you. Anyway, uh, after 13 years, these kids uh, in the refugee camp... Uh, get a chance. They get on the list to go to the United States. By that time, they're all around 20. Uh, the story begins, of course, with the terrible events of that civil war. 
1987 would be about the peak. An older brother, Theo, is taken away to be a child soldier. His story uh, continues later. His younger brother is deeply grieved because he blames himself. A lot of times these young people blame themselves for the suffering of their families, their siblings. Uh, Anyway, it's hard to watch the agony of these kids when they're young and yet so resilient, you know, seven years old, eight years old. Uh, uh, The actors in this film are Sudanese refugees, most of them central characters. One is the son of a Sudanese survivor. Now, thousands and thousands of refugees arrived in Kenya at that uh, refugee camp. And, uh, yes, they all want to get on that list. The government is lending them money. They must go to work quick and pay it back. The plane tickets, yes, are, what is that, uh, magic tickets to freedom to the so-called first world. Now, this group is particular for children, four of them surviving uh, at this point. Uh, they get to Ethiopia and finally then to that refugee camp uh, in Kenya. It's 785 miles total, months it takes them to walk from their home village. Uh, anyway, we learn later that uh, after 9-11 no more refugees from that camp are allowed in the United States the Sudan is on the terrorist list that sort of thing anyway the story tries to illustrate the larger picture you know again by focusing on individuals (laughs) it don't look like terrorists to me Ruth Reese, Reese, her name was Reese Witherspoon, you know her. (laughs) At some point, they called her the Great White Cow. It's a a form of respect. (laughs) Anyway, she comes into the store. She's an American whose uh, apartment tells us what sort of a woman she is. She works for the employment agency trying to get jobs for these three young men. Now, she's she's a pretty terrific character. she helps them later. She tried to get their sister back uh, from Boston. Anyway, <laughs> she's trying to clean up her apartment well enough to be the girl's sponsor. Uh, Abital is the name of the girl. Her brother is Mamer. The other two boys are Jeremiah. He's uh, pretty biblical. He carries his Bible with him all the way uh Kept it all those years. Anyway, the uh, plot, the story, uh, does have some fun with the culture shock. It goes both ways, of course. Uh, amazing how good the English is. These boys have had 13 years. And, of course, the girl to study, at least, you know, uh, they're not officially studying, but their English is certainly better than most Americans uh Anyway, Reese Witherspoon, uh, she she does get it, more so than most of the people around her, but uh, <laughs> she is a kind of chagrin, you know, uh, when she's told that, uh, <laughs> that they hope she will uh, 
find a husband to fill her empty house, that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, when she explains that uh, she's the one who who is responsible for her own protection and uh, support, he compliments her on her survival skills. <laughs> anyway, anyway, all these details of living with electricity, cell phones, and so forth are a chance to show the contrast in values, the cultural uh, contrasts that, uh, well, they they get a little, a little bit a, a little bit serious when Brother Jeremiah, I think of him as Brother Jeremiah on account of his Christian uh, his Christian style. Uh, uh, he's working at a supermarket and has to dump huge carts full of food that has expired sell-by dates and he goes along with this because Reese Witherspoon had explained about bosses being assholes but one day a homeless woman digging into the dumpster at the back of the store and he tells her he's got some better stuff in his cart well and the boss catches him and so much for that job anyway he tells the boss that it's a sin you know not to feed those who need food and so forth uh uh, at this point, he and his brothers go out to visit a rancher, a friend of Reese Witherspoon's. He's going to be a friend and mentor. Uh, and they ask him if they may visit his cows. This is a comfort to them because it takes them back to the time when they cared for the cattle as children. And they walk towards the herd of cattle, the cows, the three young men. And uh, they're 20, 20 ish by this time. And they hold hands. <laughs> the rancher says, Oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. Anyway, he teaches them to smile for job interviews and so forth. And uh, uh, the American way, they, they try to cope uh, with kind of wisdom. Uh, I think. My favorite scene is one in which the most sensitive, well, the most neurotic, too, high-strung, artistic young man, Paul, uh, he tells these guys he's working with in a factory about the way he got all the scars on his arm. Uh, he and his brother had an encounter with a lion, never mind, uh, that one did make me cry. The young men he works with don't believe him at first. They'd given him pot at one point. They wanted to persuade him to slow down and not work so well because it, uh, you know, <laughs> it's important that they go as a team. They don't want to keep up with this this kid. Otherwise, uh, uh, they're very nice to him, sort of. Uh, I guess, I guess the profound nature of Paul's experienced a bit about the lion. This does seem to register with these two guys. Uh, I don't know. It may be that the uh, plot is a little heavy-handed about showing what goofballs some of our young people are, although there are plenty of moments when the uh, Americans come through and act like very humane folks. Uh, Anyway, uh, here in the decadent USA, it's a wonderful object lesson to meet people uh, from 
oh, I don't like third world countries. I guess we call them developing countries. Anyway, uh, survivors, refugees. Once we called them war orphans when I was uh, a kid in the Second World War. Uh, anyway, that's the hope we have for our future. Uh, the African proverb goes, uh, I am a we. <laughs> the title of this show is The Good Lie, which uh, comes from Mark Twain's story when Huck Finn lies in order to save his friend Jim. Uh, it is a good lie. <laughs> I love it. The uh, kids, when they arrive in uh, the refugee camp, they have not seen the white persons, and one of them says that some of these people have no color. And the other kid said, well, these are born without skin. I thought of some books I've read about uh, the women and West Africa, uh, when slavers came to take them away and they thought that these white men from the ships, that they were premature babies, you know, they hadn't uh, developed properly. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the Dinka proverbs I have here, we'll have to wait for another time. Uh, hmm. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday. This has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Till next week, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadow.